Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Well, hi there. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we're so glad you decided to join us for our discussion today of 2015's A Head Full of Ghosts. I'm excited because when I was advocating for us to occasionally deviate from the film text to other horror texts, um, it was in part because I wanted an opportunity to be able to talk about Head Full of Ghosts. And this is a, I think, terrific novel. We will discuss this. I think it's Paul Tremblay's best so far. Um yeah. we will disagree. I, I actually think it's his worst, but... I, I, that doesn't mean I don't think it's good. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, when you have, I mean, I think the thing is, is that when you have an author like Tremblay has, has proven himself to be, his worst is still leagues above other people's best. And it's, oh, not, yeah. it's not worse as in, for you, it's not worse as in it's bad, it's just the other ones outrank it. Yeah, it's just in my in my opinion, I, I prefer his other two novels uh, over this one. Yes, because neither of us have had a chance to read his new his novel. We will start where we always start, which is with our critical framework. And then we'll get into our discussion of this book, which hopefully you have had a chance to read um, by now, dear audience members. And if not, you can always stick around. Maybe our discussion will encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. Yes, although, you know, I'm sure at some point there will be major spoilers. Oh, yeah, for sure. We're going to probably spoil the whole thing. Anthony and I have talked about this before that, um, you know, if you look at the the sheer amount of, of scholarship and even non-scholarship, just discussions about horror films, right? There's just so much out there. But if you look for, for stuff on, on horror fiction, unless you're talking about the classics, and I mean truly like Frankenstein, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, we're talking like the true classics, um, or Stephen King. Or Stephen King, yeah. Right. You're just really not going to find a lot of um, scholarship out there on, or or just even, again, sort of general discussions on horror fiction, which I think is a, is a real pity because some of the best stuff that's out there right now, I think, is actually fiction. Um, it's just so much easier to watch a movie than it is to s- sit down and have to read a full book. It is, and it's easier to uh, often write a 20-page article about a movie than it is to write it about a book right and there's lots of really uh, i think obvious reasons oh um, yeah but i would like to argue and advocate for more discussions about horror fiction period um but particularly about uh tremblay's head full of ghosts so there is one article that i know of and i'm not saying there are not others but there is one article that i think uh will allow us to have some interesting conversations about why um, this book works in a lot of respects and maybe why it doesn't always work. Do be warned, uh, dear listeners, this this article, though, is a bit, uh, pardon the pun, heady. So uh, so just just be warned. Yes, it is. Um, so this is a, an article called Horror After Theory and After Theories in Quotation Marks by Lyle Enright. 
uh, and it comes out of the Palgrave Handbook to Horror Literature. But um, as Anthony mentioned, this is a, a little bit more dense of an article because essentially what Enright is arguing is that we have this this renaissance of horror fiction that is coming out, and he also cites books like Mark Danieleski's House of Leaves, uh, that um, also like Dan Simmons Drood, right, that that are intentionally engaging not only with generic elements but with theory elements and so his argument is that we have these texts uh, and he says head full of ghosts definitely falls in here that are really challenging the our understanding of the genre as much as they are adding to the genre and that one of the ways they're doing it is by having authors that are very cognizant of of the scholarship and of course in head full of ghosts that comes out largely through the blog posts, right? Yeah, and I think this this kind of holds, I think we're seeing a, a real turn towards this. It's like with the whole postmodernism type of movement, it's really hard to make content today without acknowledging the work that came before it and thus all the tropes and pitfalls that have come before it as well and all the baggage that comes with writing anything in genre. Yes, and... You know, it's not surprising because now, nowadays, right, if you're going to have, say, for example, a zombie text, are you going to have this, like, you know, multiple episodes and or, like, chapters where they're like, what are these things? I don't know. We've never, ever seen something like it. And you, the reader, are like, they're zombies. Hello, right? Or are you going to have a world where they're like, these are zombies? Well, that's interesting, right? And it really is. It changes the dynamic of the world you're creating, of our understanding of the concepts. If you're going to go more, more postmodern, and we've talked about um, before in this podcast how that's not always my cup of tea, particularly in films like The Dead Don't Die. Um, but it, then it's delightfully my cup of tea in other films uh, such as Scream, right? So it really is, I think you're absolutely correct that we have to acknowledge that we are in a period that is aware of itself and that wants fiction, uh, be that literature or film, that is also aware of itself. I think it would be quite hard to sell modern contemporary audiences on the idea that nobody in the present day has heard of zombies, ghosts, uh, possession narratives, which is what Headful of Ghosts is all about. It's really hard to do that because they're so ingrained in the culture. Like those films and those books that have inspired this genre and brought them to the mainstream have to be acknowledged in the present because you can't, other, unless you're writing in an alternate timeline in which there are no texts like The Exorcist or The Poltergeist or things like that, then you have to acknowledge that people are probably going to be aware of them and know at least something about it. Yes. And and we talked about this, right, very explicitly in our Exorcist episode, that, that the reason The Exorcist remains so important, even if it's not the film that Anthony and I are going to go to when we just want to watch a horror film, is because you can't exist in a in a world that doesn't acknowledge the exorcist right it helped for all the bad that the exorcist is and i do think it is a lot of bad as <laughs> and if you want full thoughts go back and listen to our episode on the exorcist yes but i can't deny that the exorcist did create a sort of language for possession narratives uh specifically any possession narrative that features the element of religion you can't deny that there's a specific language and a way that it operates that have kind of become universal. And, you know, it's interesting. So uh, Head Full of Ghosts was one of the 
the books that uh, we had our had the students read in uh, our class on the home and American horror. Mm-hmm. And there were several students who said that at first they were really worried about reading this book because they were so very tired of the possession narrative and they didn't want to read another book that dealt with the possession narrative. And then they were pleasantly not just surprised, but engaged with this text because they realized that it was aware of the strengths and weaknesses of that subgenre. It was aware of the tensions and the, the sort of things that make the genre rich uh and but also aware of the things that are problematic and and so that to me is right there one of the big selling points as is that as and right said this is a text that is aware of itself and is sort of acknowledging hey i know everything that's happened not just in terms of the genre but also in terms of discussion about the genre i'm going to incorporate that into something that is going to problematize uh this text and it does that in a both a more of an abstract way in how it treats the characters and the situations because most of the characters have a knowledge of it. But also in a very, very literal way, it deals with discussion and criticism of these types of medias and texts because it has a character that is a blogger, specifically on horror texts, that allows it to kind of go in and make references and at least pay a little bit of lip service to these famous horror texts that Clearly, Paul Tremblay has talked about they influenced him. They influenced the writing of this book. Yes. And, you know, it was interesting to see the sort of uh, reader response because there were students who admitted that, you know, as they were reading the blog post, they were like, yep, nod. I understand where that reference mm-hmm. is. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And there were other students that said that they, you know, their their knowledge of the genre was not rich enough for them to be able to make every connection. But they nevertheless appreciated it's sort of being grounded, right, in this framework uh, that, that again, was both simulating what we wanted them to be doing in the class, which is critically thinking about it, but also uh, just sort of that awareness of, of all that's happened before. And I think by also acknowledging within the text itself that possession and exorcist uh, type of narratives are a bit contrived and played out at this point, it allows you to not focus so much on that and on the actual possession narrative itself but really more of how these specific characters are reacting to the possession narrative itself because it's the text itself explicitly acknowledges that it's a bit played out and overdone at this point yes and i find it very interesting uh if you look at the the ratings the reader ratings for this book uh on goodreads it's it's got a 3.8 which when you look at the actual comments um, a lot of the criticism is is because I don't think they understood uh, what Anthony says is, I think, made very explicit in the text. And that is that you'll read the reviews and it'll be things like, um, this was a familiar story that I've seen before. Or there's this is the typical possession narrative. Um, I've already, this has already been experienced in The Exorcist. And, and I'm not saying that, that this is a flawless book because I, I'm not sure there's such a thing as a flawless text. But but I think that you're right. That the, one of the big things that differentiates readers that really like this text versus ones that don't is their awareness of it as being a post-genre, uh, post-theory uh, text. Yeah, I think this is something that when we talk about Tremblay more and his other texts, you'll see throughout all of his books is that he doesn't really care about writing a unique and original story like or coming up with that premise Mm -hmm. he's more focused on 
the other things involved in creating a horror story, uh, particularly one that is so postmodern, po post theory. And so he just wants to see how more normal people will react in these situations than we're often given in most horror texts, because in horror films and literature, it is typically assumed that they're going to be kind of stupid idiots who make dumb choices so that we can have the most effective scares possible. But in Tripoli's writing, he really crafts characters that feel really real and thus juxtaposes that with this extreme crazy situation that we've seen played out before and just like forces you to be with them while they deal with it. Yes, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a very smart move because he's not just writing in a post Stephen King world. He's writing in a post Clive Barker, Ramsey Campbell, uh, Jack Ketchum, Peter Straub, um, not to mention the like Poe, Jackson, uh, Matheson, William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the yeah, the list goes on. And so he, you know, just as, as I think any possession narrative today really does need to acknowledge where it fits in this post-exorcist world, um, you know, he's writing in a in a time where we actually, we have a lot of really great horror that have already broken the grounds. Anybody who's like, I have an idea for a story that you've never heard before. It's about a girl who, uh, you know, has telekinetic powers that develop around the time of her period. No, you know, once upon a time that was revolutionary. Um, it is not anymore. Um, and so we have Tremblay coming in and saying, like you said, what's interesting to me is, is not that I've reinvented the possession wheel. It's that I'm saying, okay, what do we do within this world if we already know this world or think that we do? And I want to bring in just one quote from Enright to, that I think really encapsulates perhaps much more succinctly what, what we are talking about as being, I think, one of the, the strengths of this text. And so he says, and this is a quote, each piece of evidence only makes the picture more complicated, not less. And though postmodern theory has often praised this kind of ambiguity, the legacy of the theory is here critiqued for offering diagnostic narratives which actually seek to explain rather than maintain the ambiguity. And then he goes on a little bit later to say, for Tremblay, true horror resides in the ambiguity, which remains in Mary's memory and in the indecision between the natural and the unnatural. And so to kind of break that down, because again, like I said, and like Anthony said, um, in Wright's article is a little dense, really he's seen that, you know, the postmodern genre has, has praised ambiguity as being the sort of like be all end all uh, approach to things. And he argues that Tremblay sort of simultaneously celebrates the ambiguity while also saying that this might be the source of horror, that what might be disturbing is the fact that if we take memories, Mary's memories, uh, Mary's account during the moment, the video footage uh, of the TV show, as well as Karen's blog, right? If we throw all of that together, um, things don't become simpler. They become more complicated and that that may or may not always be a good thing. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty much explicitly what Tremblay wants. Uh, he said in an interview that the ambiguity is just a huge part of his book and it was such an intentional choice on his part. He wanted to, and I'm quoting him directly here, muddy the water as much as I could. And to do so, I put in as many filters and perspectives on Mary's reality as I could. Yeah, that's a lovely quote. I just, I feel, I'm not sure, I don't have a good way to segue into this. I just feel it's so important to 
like shout out that that Tremblay is a mathematician, right? That that that's his that's true his background, and I it you know it's kind of it's interesting that in a world where um, you know you're taught that ambiguity is is not something that's necessary, right? So much of math is about certainty, um, uh-huh. although not advanced math, but so much about like how we understand math is about certainty. And then he says, you know, but I don't, I want it to be just completely open for this like muddying of waters. I just, I just want to like praise him for being amazing. Yeah. Trimpley's a bit of a weird dude. He's done quite a bit. He, yeah, he got, like you said, he got his master's degree in mathematics. Then he worked at factories for a little while in the warehouses and on assembly lines. And then he taught high school math and coached basketball uh, for a bit. And all the while he was just kind of writing these short stories. And then eventually he got to where he is today, where he is a full-blown horror author. But he's just had a very interesting life. He's not just, he hasn't been tied to any one thing. Uh, Many strands are in his life and he's tried to follow them all at least a little bit. When you read the the author notes that he often provides, I feel like you can see that, right? Because he has some very like methodical ways that he engages with his texts, things that he's very specifically hoping to do. He he often sets for himself almost a sort of like mental puzzle that he has to work himself out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that that ends up being very rewarding in any text. And I, I think Headful of Ghosts is no exception. And it also, the he because he includes the, what we're referring to is in most copies of the books. There's like extended liner notes uh, that he has on, on everything. And just, it also shows that he's done so much research. Behind pretty much every choice that is made, he has a reason for it. There's no, he didn't just choose a name. The name was chosen for a very specific reason because it had a specific influence. Like... Rachel Neville uh, was named after two people. Robert Neville, the last person alive, the protagonist in I Am Legend, uh, and then also was named after the excellent British horror writer Adam ne- uh, Neville. So that name, which is could just have been anything, it could have just e- as easily been uh, Jamie Smith, <laughs> and it would have worked fine. But it has a very, very specific and thorough reason behind it yes to go back to that criticism that's often leveled at him that this feels very familiar i think that you know he he wants it to feel very familiar from names that you're like haven't i haven't i heard that before i feel like that's a name of a character to just the basic premise um it's he's intentionally or at least the narratives can be read as an as intentionally creating this space for us to bring in all of our prior knowledge as an advantage, right? Oftentimes when we read a book, we're, we're asked to temporarily not be reminded of anything else that exists. Yes, that's suspension of disbelief. Yes. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't ask you to suspend any disbelief. No, in fact, he, he asks you as much as possible to bring in all of the knowledge that you have prior, um, all of the, the sort of mindsets and viewpoints that you have because that's where the text becomes more complicated. Yeah, and to question everything he's telling you, everything that is being set up, uh, he wants you to challenge and be like, and not just 
suspend your disbelief and go along with him because that's easier and that'll make it easier for him to write his story and for you to get done with it if you just like go along with him no he wants you to be like well does that make sense is this a, another instance of our narrator being unreliable or could we can we actually trust her on this yes and that that idea of the unreliable narrator is is so powerfully done in this book so just as a you know reminder for those of you that aren't using your 12th grade English lessons a lot. An unreliable narrator is a, rela- is a narrator that for whatever reason we can't trust. Um, mm-hmm. And as Anthony pointed out to me when we were just kind of talking through the idea of the unreliable narrator, we have a lot of examples of, of, of real people that we know are unreliable narrators. Um, and I think one of the one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that we can never entirely trust any author um, or storyteller because by by bent they are telling stories and they will tell you a story about the significance of you know something that in reality just kind of came to them in the moment um and so edgar Allan poe is, was your example yeah he's a classic liar he lied about everything it made it so impossible to write biographies about him because anytime anyone would ask him a question he would just say whatever came into his head and like it, sometimes so i remember stephen king in an interview once said something like I used to tell people X because it sounded more mysterious or more whatever. And then he's like, but the truth is right. And it's just, yeah. that's, you're going to build Robert a Patterson does the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> and so if you look at, if you look at like a quick Wikipedia search for unreliable narrator, what's really interesting um, is the number of their examples that has a narrator who is unreliable because of mental illness. Mm. Um, and so they mentioned the telltale heart. Uh, they mentioned the yellow wallpaper. Um, they mentioned the TV show Legion, uh, the, t- mm. the TV show You, right? So all of those are examples of people that we know are unreliable because they're mentally unstable. One of the ones they mentioned that I think is worth bringing up um, is, because it's not an obvious one, because uh, it's not obviously mentally unstable, is the the Ted Mosby narrator of How I Met Your Mother. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the fact that we have to understand that he's going to be, he's telling a story to his children. So it is going to be biased, right? Um, oh, yeah. And anyway, so in Headful of Funny Mosby, thing about How I Met Your Mother, though, is you'd think if Ted Mosby is telling the story to his children, he would make himself come off better because he comes off as such a jerk. See, but I think... He's the worst. So, like, super quick aside, I actually think that uh, that he does paint himself out to be better right because certainly better than one of the biggest issues i have with that show is is the barney robin conclusion right the way it works oh yeah up. and i was reading something the other day that was talking about the fact that um if we keep in mind that ted mosby is going to tell a version of his past that makes it so that his children are okay with him getting with robin spoiler alert um <laughs> that he's gonna want to paint barney in a more negative light Right. So he's going to be even more of a womanizer and even more of a whatever. So I feel like if, if we're if he's painting himself as the opposite of, of Barney. Um, anyway, not. I was an interesting aside. <laughs> so anyway, what, what I was going to say for Headphone coming Mosby, soon are yeah. how I met your mother retrospective podcast. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure we can make it fit under conversations, about, uh, you know, about horror. I'm sure we can make that work. But. What I was going to say for Headful of Ghosts is that it, it employs my absolute favorite of, of favorites, 
um, literary sort of tropes. And that is, and it does it multiple times over, and that is the story within a story. I'm just such a sucker for, for that. And we have Mary's account, but we have to remember that it is Mary's account as an adult that she is telling to a news uh, person. Yeah, an interviewer. And, yes, and so we we have to keep that in mind, but but we don't always remember that, right? Because when we're in Mary's childhood, we're kind of in that uh, sort of in the moment. Then we have Karen's blog, uh, which we have to realize is also really Mary, right, Re- uh, reflecting on this. And then we but have- not just reflecting on the event, really more of reflecting on the televised version yes. of the event, which is uh, our other major modality, right? That we have the story that has been crafted into a, a mini series. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so we have to understand that anything that's happening while they're filming is, is being edited um, accordingly. For and maximum entertainment value. Exactly. And I just have to say that I just find that to be such a clever way to build an unreliable narrator, because what we realize is, is that first off, she's not, I don't think intentionally, Mary's not intentionally being unreliable, right? She's not purposely lying or trying to trick the audience. But I also think that we have to assume that we're never going to know the truth because they're, because Mary doesn't understand the truth. She right. can't reflect back on, on what's happening. It's not even that she's saying, this is the version of things that I know. It's here's a version of things that I know, but here's another version. Cause also she was so young at the time and it was such a traumatic event that you combine those two things. And those two things alone are enough to muddy the waters and make you unsure of what happened because there's a bunch of traumatic things and you're already young and have a hard time remembering but then at, filter in on top of that there is a version of what happened to you in the public zeitgeist that everyone knows because apparently this tv show is very popular and so that is what has been told to you and presented to you as your life your entire life your entire life yeah. as well and so it's only natural that she's kind of confused as to what is the truth and what actually did happen. Exactly. I mean, I think all of us have those memories that we don't entirely remember on our own, right? But mm-hmm. that have been told to us so many times that we feel we know it. Um, how much more complicated would it get if it's not just your mom telling you, like, uh, you know, once upon a time you were little and this is what happened, but it's actually like, let's watch the DVD uh, special edition of, of your childhood, right? During mm-hmm. this most traumatic of, of times. Um, and there's just something really sophisticated in how Tremblay weaves back and forth those different perspectives and and creates an ambiguity that I'm okay with. And, you know, Anthony really knows this, but, but I feel like, listeners, you've probably picked up on the fact that I'm not normally a big fan of, of ambiguity because I think oftentimes it's... Ooh, um, I'm going to say it. This is going to sound really harsh, but it's it's author laziness, right? It's the like, or if not laziness, then then inability or unwillingness to commit, right? Like reach in the bag, pull out which thing you find most disturbing, and there mm-hmm. it is. I don't think that's what Tremblay is doing here. I think he's saying, here's what's most disturbing, that this sense of ambiguity, and it doesn't matter which way you read the story at the end, we have broken people and a broken family and a broken world. Well, I mean, I think this is a, a kind of memory hoarder 
uh, in that one of the most disturbing things what is that you can't trust your own memory and that you things that you remember to be true turn out to not be quite as true as you remember or just never happened but because they've been told to you so many times they're in your head yes and so it, it kind of falls into the camp of memory horror in that regard which i don't think is the same thing as being just like like we we've talked about it with us of being just overly ambiguous grab bag horror but that's not what this is the ambiguity is more plays into the memory horror that this book is yes and you know it's it's big things right like so that memory that you can't entirely remember might be the difference of were you wearing a yellow shirt or a green shirt or were you the instigator or the victim in a fight this is my sister was either possessed or pretending to be possessed. My sister either killed the family or, um, you know, it was an accident or I killed the family, you know, right? And there's just, there's so much at work. But I think you're spot on that that what we realize is, is that what is less important in this case is, is which conclusion we arrive at. Because no matter what, we're not allowed to arrive at it with total certainty. And how disturbing is that to have that sort of realization that on big issues fundamental issues we'll never be able to know for sure if if we're which which was the truth and i think that this is a problem that is larger than just the individual characters in the text i think in a society like ours that is so fact-based and we have the internet so we can just google everything and have things proved certain for us that it's it's very scary when we can't say for certainty what has happened. And I think that is one of the elements that is certainly at play here. In, in a culture that's kind of obsessed with facts and quickness and readiness of information, not being able to have a clear definitive answer is quite alarming. And he gives us some some modes, right, that, that should feel very definitive, such as a TV show that has been edited together that involves a whole crew, mm -hmm. such as a blog post that is clearly grounded in theory and isn't theory like truth, right? Very researched, yeah. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, you're absolutely correct. One of the, the interesting things that I think emerges out of people's responses and feelings about the book particularly as it was as you know as a text that is about the home and horror um is that you know there were some people that really felt like it was less ab about horror in the home and more about sort of a critique of american culture and sort of the psyche of a mentally ill girl within that culture and and to me again i think that what what head full of ghosts does is it creates an and both and right instead of it being a this is either this or it's that um it's it's constantly saying that it's all of this together and when we throw all of these layers in mm -hmm. right uh, to go back to what you said uh Tremblay says it, it murkies the waters because yeah. we can't separate um a possession narrative from the the illnesses of the larger society from the anxieties and fears and i think that's that's kind of what this book does. It is its best is that it refuses to let us untangle things that we so desperately want to untangle. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a book that is, at least for me, it was 
uh, not immediately satisfying upon completing it. And I think it is because of the ambiguity, because of that desire to kind of, you want an answer of some sorts as to like, either flat out don't believe this person or do believe this person, at least parts of it, because they can be kind of trusted. It never gives you that. It gives you a kind of, I don't know. Can we ever really know? Uh, and I, I, that was fresh. That's frustrating because you want answers. But mm -hmm. the more you think about it, or at least for me, the more satisfying that's been because I'm, it's it is exactly what you were just talking about. It's more reflective of how things actually happen in the real world, and it, that is it's scary to not know. Yes, and you know to make a, a sort of comparison back to to films. Um, you know, I've I've read horror fiction that is the equivalent of, of a jump scare, right? In the moment, you're like, ooh, that's a scary image. Or maybe even, like, you're reading the book and it's late at night and a door closes and you're like, I thought I was alone, right? But, but then when you put it down, it's, eh, you know, that was an experience. Um, this is a book that's the opposite. It grabs hold of your of your brain and, you know, it's hours days weeks later and you're finding yourself asking you know the the dark questions and the deep questions about you know what am i supposed to believe and how am i ever supposed to know it especially in a world that is now giving me more and more versions of the story right yeah now that's not to say that i think all of the ambiguity works i i think it goes too far particularly at the end with the weird little you, you said something like jump scares, but in books, uh, I think this is, that is essentially what happens at the end when the, there's that breath of air at the end, right at the end of the novel. And you're like, okay, whatever. I, you, it, please just end the book already. Yeah. So, it's... so if you read Tremblay's uh, sort of notes right on here, he talks about the fact that the final sentence of the book, which is, after an awkward silence and after Rachel and I say our goodbyes again, it's cold enough that my breath is a visible mist. That he he wanted to to pay homage to the thing and to, you know, that sort of ambiguity there at the end of the film, the thing where you're not sure, you know, if if any of the characters are human anymore. And so we get this moment where we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it possible that Mary is possessed and has always been possessed or that she became possessed later, right? And I think you're right. I think that... You know, earlier I said that, that we can't say this is a flawless book because I'm not sure there is such a thing. I would say that's that's the point where, you know, and I don't know if it means cutting that last paragraph, or not paragraph, that last chapter or the last paragraph. But but I think you're right that um, this is this was his grab bag moment, right? The mm -hmm. reason that this doesn't work is because this was the like, OK, reach in the bag. Do you want her to be possessed or not? And I think that 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 is trying to, you know, give audience a potential to have their cake and eat it too. Whereas every other moment of ambiguity is more, you know, it doesn't matter. And also that dumbs it down to either, it's a 50%, either she is possessed and everything that she said is a lie, or she isn't possessed and the things that have come before it aren't, aren't lies. They're not conscious lies. It, it really dumbs it down. Whereas so much of the rest of the book has been there's a million different ways this can go. But with that final choice, it kind of negates everything that's come before it in a single paragraph. 
it undermines the complexities of the entire book and the multiple certainties and uncertainties that are presented to you. With that, it's like, nope, just one or the other. She either was possessed or wasn't, and that really does affect the entire book now. And so I think that's another reason that immediately upon finishing this book, I was kind of, I wasn't as immediately like, wow, that was great, because I was so frustrated by the ending and how it undermined itself and everything that it had done before. It's a very insightful comment because I think you're right that one of the strengths of this book is that it never lets us think for a minute that either or is the way things work. Um, that it really is like a little bit of this and a touch of that and a smidgen of that. Um, because, you know, like you said, it's not is Mary lying or is she not? It's does Mary understand things? Well, it depends on which context and which situation. And sometimes she's maybe preserving. Right. And I think you're right that that ending forces us back into this either or paradigm that is that the whole book has spent the whole time deconstructing. Yeah. And and I think you're also right that this is a book that only becomes powerful upon completion. I, I know a lot of people, uh, I had a friend who told me that um, for the first like 75 to 90% of the book, he was like, I have no idea why you recommended this. I don't, it's fine. It's just not great. And then he finished it and he was like, eh, there it is, right? And and I think that um, that's a big gamble and you can ruin it in, in a few sentences. Um, and I don't think he completely ruined it, but I think that, you know, this is, a real criticism is that you cannot poor people you cannot um give us this grab bag that's not going to make your your film your story your novel stronger um ambiguity does but not not this grab bag approach mm -hmm. and so for me how i kind of deal with it is pretend that that last line doesn't matter i just kind of i know that that is not the best way to deal with it but I just kind of choose to ignore it and be like, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that we could see the breath for any number of reasons. I don't want to just think it's as simple as what even Paul Tremblay says it is, where it's like, is she possessed or isn't she? That I just don't, I don't care. Yes. <laughs> and, and I do something kind of similar. I think of it almost like an alternate scene that I've chosen to, to not. Um, it's from the director's cut. It is. And and actually, you know, we just, but but I think it really is. This is something that Tremblay wanted to get in as one more wink or nod. Um, and, and I'm not sure that it was uh, successful in a way that, that nearly everything else in this book was. I do think that what's nice is that he did weave in some moments that are sort of in the moment a little scary, right? I always think about that scene where Marjorie may or may not be in the room with Mary at night and in the, mm -hmm. the like doll house, kids house. Um, and so again, I think that for the most part, this book manages to really do a good job of, of playing with that. I also just want to point out that some of the most thoughtful discussions I felt like in, in the entire class in home and horror, uh, stemmed from this book, uh, and stemmed from this book because it allowed people to raise questions such as, um, what are we supposed to do about a patriarchal system in which the patriarchy is not only disenfranchised, uh, but also perhaps incompetent? Um, mm -hmm. What are we supposed to do about parental neglect when, and who defines what is parental neglect? Is the father being neglectful or is the mother being neglectful or is it both? 
what are we supposed to do about a religion that um, has been a foundational component of our understanding of possession narratives that may be not that far removed from our definition of, of religions that we find very dangerous and threatening. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, you know, what do we do with, you know, I think it's so important, so important that Marjorie, you know, it's, she is at the cusp of many things. She may have some mental illness, but she's also just a teenage girl. Um, and we've talked before about this idea of the grotesque and the unruly, right? And, right. and so much of this book is maybe she just has a, a, a bad personality right now. Maybe she's just hormonal um, or maybe she's mentally ill or maybe she's possessed. And this goes back again to what you said, Anthony, that I think you can read it as it's not 50-50. It's, well, in this moment, it may have been this. In this moment, it may have been that. Um, and or all of the above or none of the above um, and that's really I don't know this would have I felt like have been a really challenging book to write as well as as Tremblay did I have a one more slight problem with with the text particularly in terms of the the structure mm -hmm. and, and the you I know you talked about earlier how much you enjoyed the multiple levels of how the story is told because it is an interview but it also weaves in blog posts, but it also weaves in scenes from the television show, but it also uh, weaves in scenes from her memory. And that's a lot of things to do. And it sometimes gets lost. And I would I wish that maybe there had been more usage of the blog posts in particular, because they really only seem to be there for exposition dumps, which seemed like a bit of a waste of what they could have been which I think if they had been sprinkled more throughout the text, they wouldn't have felt like, oh, I see what this is doing. It's just a place for them to do an exposition dump, but do it in a bit of a cheeky way. Okay, I got it. Whereas the way it's used now and that, that's all it is. I agree. I, I with, with the second part of what you said, I agree that um, we did need more blog posts, in part because I think you're right, that there was a missed potential in terms of that, that perspective we could have been offered. Um, and, you know, and that perspective is that as a as a scholar, right, we're so often required to take a stance that we cannot entirely. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you're right that that would have been a great opportunity. I, I do think, though, that what we didn't want to have happen is is very obvious segmentations. Um, where it's okay and now we're having Karen and now we're having um, you know transcript from the show because I think that one of the things this this novel does very effectively is that by the end we can't entirely remember which version gave us which information I, I agree with that and I that's why I think I would have liked to see more usage of the various media forms sprinkled throughout because for a vast majority of this book, it is just her memory of what happened being told in a pretty standard narrative form. Uh, and we are led to believe that this is being filtered through her conversations with the interviewer, but that's not really super apparent uh, after, unless you are right at the beginning of the parts where it's like, I, I was talking to Rachel for a second, uh, and then you get back into the narrative flow. But for the for the vast majority of it, it's just operating under the standard lens of this is a narrative possession book. A and I would have liked more of the alternate 
uh, media sources telling us more of what happened, more blog posts, more things from the television show, more of Rachel, the interviewer's thoughts on what is happening and her experience, because we're also led to believe that she has had some experience with the Possession TV show, and that's why she's writing this article <laughs> about it. And so she comes with her own memory of what's happened. And so she could have brought in some pushback to certain parts that she's remembering and being like, I remember it this way, actually. I saw it on the television show. No, you're, you were very correct in, in what you were saying actually speaks to one of my big concerns, and that is that, you know, this, this story has been optioned uh, for a, a film adaptation. Yes. And to be perfectly honest, I think that everything that makes this, this book perfect, flawed, but perfect, uh, as, as a text to, to really explore what I think horror does at its best, um, I'm not sure that's going to be able to be communicated in a film. I think it could be done in a TV show where we could alternate between like, you know, episodes that are, uh, or a limited series where we could alternate between episodes that are entirely the filmed version of the possession as though we were watching it as viewers. And then episodes where we're in the story uh, as though we're married. Like, I think, I think it could work in a, in a limited series or something like that. But I don't know if, if the reason that the moment I finished this book, I felt the need to talk about it. Uh, which is to me a sign of a good book because I read lots of books that I don't feel the need to ever share with people. Right. Um, <laughs> but like I had to like spill forth all my ideas immediately. I, I'm not entirely sure that's going to be able to be replicated um, in film form, not in a traditional Hollywood film form. Yeah. And that kind of devastates me. Focus features certainly has their work cut out for them. I think the only way you could really do it is if it's really hyper stylized and you acknowledge that you're cutting in between different various mediums and that is just like a conscious choice that's being done and i just can't see that being the route that that most major film studios including focus uh, are going to choose to do i think it's going to be the story of mary as a kid and then you know maybe if we're lucky we'll have a moment of ambiguity but that's i think they're going to streamline it they're going to streamline it a lot and in a reality, right, we're supposed to walk away realizing that we have our own uh, head full of ghosts. Um, and I think that, you know, a film version is going to be head full of ghosts, right? Like, I just think it's yeah, going to have to Yeah, the one. Like... It's like, that's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Up next is going to be a continuation of the Tremblay train. In our next episode, we are going to be looking at the cabin at the end of the world. And we're not just going to be talking about the cabin at the end of the world. We are also going to be doing a comparison to a film. Bum, We're going to be talking. Yeah, it's a bit of a comparative text kind of episode. We're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's film Mother. For those of you that have already read the book and seen the film, and you're asking yourself why, um, you'll have to just listen to our next episode. For those of you that haven't read the book or watched the film yet, please do so for our next episode. Uh, where we're going to do our very first comparative uh, analysis, and we're very excited about that. In the meantime, be sure to share our podcast with others, either digitally or with your friends, uh, and be sure to give us a like and leave us a comment if you can. It really helps uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Just tell us we're doing a good job, or give us some honest feedback. Listen, we're, we'll take it. Yes, Got thick skin. <laughs> and in the meantime, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you.